Welcome to Ipsit Ixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Tennille Ruth Brown, Professor of Law at the University of Utah S.J. Quinney College of Law. We will discuss her article, Denying Death, which was published in the Arizona Law Review. So welcome to the show, Tennille. Thank you so much for having me. I, I'm, I'm really delighted to have you on this show because I thought this was a really powerful and important paper that spoke to things that I've experienced in my own life and that I think a lot of other people have experienced in their lives, unfortunately, as well. Um, I wonder if you could start the, the episode by talking a little bit about how you became interested in this subject and, and came to write this particular paper. So a good friend of mine was seeing patients at our local cancer hospital, and she was seeing terminal cancer patients at the very end of their lives when they were crashing, when things weren't going well. And she said to me, I'm the first person who is talking to these patients about their death. I'm asking them questions that nobody has asked them before. Their oncologist hasn't talked to them about how they would like to die or what their goals of care are. Their nurses haven't asked them this. And so she was just really expressing to me kind of a surprise and frustration that the, these patients had been in the hospital multiple times. They had been treated for years in some cases. And yet here she was, this hospitalist who had no relationship with the patient. And she was the first person to ask them how they wanted to die or what they might want their death to look like. And so she she brought that up to me. I was just sort of shocked that that this was happening. And my husband actually is also a doctor. He's not an oncologist, but he he does the diagnosing of cancer. So he goes into people's lungs and takes little biopsies to figure out what stage the cancer is. And I I've often heard him relay diagnoses over the phone. Um, he's not giving names. So, you know, there's no like HIPAA violation, but I'm hearing him tell people that they have cancer for the first time. And he's a pretty like stoic, sedate dude. Uh, but when he's giving these cancer diagnoses, it is the most optimistic way possible. He's He's painting everything with the most rosy light. And then he would get off the phone and say things to me about how someone has maybe three months or six months to live and how sad it is. And how it's, oh, this person, they're only 40 years old and they have a couple kids and they, they probably only have six months left to live. And I'll think that is such a sharp contrast from that conversation I just heard you having where it was all upbeat and you know there are all these new medications and treatments. And then to me, privately offline saying... I think this person doesn't have very long to live. So seeing those contrasts, a lot of things just started converging. I'm also on our hospital's ethics committee, and there are a lot of ethics issues that come up at the end of life because there's a conflict over what ought to be done, what should be done. And it seemed like a lot of times people just weren't asking the patient what the patient wanted to have done. So is this common for for patients to get unjustifiably or maybe kind of unreasonably optimistic estimates of how long they have to live when doctors relay their diagnosis information to them? It is very common. So there's actually quite a bit of research on this. Uh, there's a journal called Journal of Clinical Oncology that's done tons of research on what cancer patients say they want to know, what they actually know. Uh, and for certain diagnoses like colorectal cancer and lung cancer, patients say they would like to know the full prognosis information. And something like 
80% of colorectal cancer patients, something like 60 to 70% of lung cancer patients, they mistakenly think that the purpose of their treatment is to cure the cancer. And it's not the case. This is palliative treatment or just kind of um, trying to treat the symptoms of the cancer, but not trying to cure it. And the patients don't know that. So lots of studies have looked into this and found that a huge chunk of cancer patients, but also other patients. So it's not just cancer patients. It can be true of diabetics uh, and other long-term chronic diseases where what the patient knows and what the physician knows are two different things, but it's really acute in terminal cancer patients. Why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think that doctors aren't giving patients kind of a realistic estimate of how long they have to live. And is that what patients want or not? Yeah, it's a complicated question because the patients say they want to know everything, but when then they're told exactly how bad the prognosis is, they don't really want that information as much as they say they do. So there can be, um, there's a feeling that you ask them in the abstract, would you like to know everything about your prognosis and what that's going to look like? And they say, yes, yes, yes. But then when they're actually told and it might be the way that they're told. Some of the recent research has shown that more doctors are talking about prognosis and saying you maybe only have three months to live or six months to live, uh, but they're maybe not communicating in a very good way about that very empathically. Um, but so th I think there are a lot of reasons why physicians aren't sharing the kind of hard truths about prognosis with patients. I think it's because in general, that's sort of a taboo subject and we don't talk about death culturally very much. It's sort of, we all are going to die, every one of us, uh, but there's, you're kind of, it's taboo and you're considered kind of tacky if you mention death. That carries over a little bit, even into oncology departments. And even when patients are terminally ill, there's still a sense that uh, cancer patients should be fighting this war on cancer. They should be positive. In fact, you're not a good cancer patient if you're not fighting really hard uh, and so there's, that's part of it too. I don't know if, if you've been to a cancer hospital, but there's a lot of images, uh, some of them very uplifting and very positive, hopeful images, but you get confronted with this idea of cancer. You need to be hopeful. Like immediately upon getting a cancer diagnosis, the patient needs to pivot to the, seeing the optimism in this cancer diagnosis. And so there's a lot of pressure on the patient to be optimistic. There's also a lot of pressure on the physician. And so this is the, relationships that patients have with their oncologists are not like relationships you have with a doctor you see maybe once every couple of years. They are often very intense emotional bonds. So they have this sort of dance that they can perform together where they both know what's going on on some level, but they can also ignore the kind of cold facts about what that means for this patient. Uh, they're not trained in how to talk about death. So that's another big part. Doctors don't like to do things that they're not competent at. You know, they like to appear competent in all, <laughs> in all ways. And so if they're not trained to do something and they don't think they do it well, they're less le likely to do it. Uh, there's a lot of other reasons too I could go into. I mean, I think the primary ones are, it's hard. It's hard to talk about death. It's hard to look someone in the eye and talk about the fact that they're near death. But then there's all this planning that needs to surround that. And so when you don't have that conversation, the physician maybe thinks, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, everyone understands that this patient is not likely to live very long. So then the burden is kind of on the patient to connect the dots, figure that out, do their financial planning, do their estate planning, uh, figure out how to plan the funeral. And no one really connects the dots for the patient. The patient expects someone to, and then it's my friend in the ICU when the patient is crashing, as opposed to being that oncologist that they've had that close relationship with. Is is part of the problem that doctors don't always know exactly 
how long someone... Absolutely. Absolutely. That's true. And when I would talk to my husband about this and would say, what do you think is going on here? He would say, well, prognosticating is hard and it's imperfect. And so if it is possible that this patient could be an outlier, then maybe that is my job to paint a picture for them that that suggests they could be that outlier because they could be. So that's the thing is uh, he said, I've, I've seen patients where I told them they maybe had a year to live and they lived five more years. And so maybe telling them they had a year to live could have put some sort of damper on their plans. And it's, it's not a perfect science. It's getting better. Prognosticating is getting better. But if you're using group average data, it's not a lie to say that this one person might diverge from that group data. Uh, It's just, yeah, it's, it's tricky. I mean, but I think they fall back on that too often, even though all of the markers of that patient maybe put them in a different camp. So say, People with stage four lung cancer tend to live less than a year. Um, But then maybe this person has a special kind of small cell lung cancer and a certain aggressive type or genetic mutation that means they're less, they're less likely to live even that long. And so maybe a physician may have some obligation to share that with the patient if the patient wants to know. So this is all premised on what does the patient want to know? And in some cases, the patient may not want to know, and that's perfectly fine too. I mean, is there an argument that it makes people feel better not to necessarily know how short a time they have left? And to the extent that there might be some potential benefits associated with kind of soft misinformation, as it were, about about long-term prognosis, what do you see as being the biggest problems or biggest costs associated with not being more candid and um, and factually sort of accurate and upfront with patients? Yeah, that's a good point. I think it really depends on the patient because for some people, more information is empowering and it can help them structure things because they're planners and not having information makes them very anxious. But for other types of people, that same information where you have a, a, a calendar date that is what your projected kind of death, rough death date is, that could give them much more anxiety. So I think it's about having conversations with patients to try to figure out what type of person they are and what kind of information is going to help them and their family, because this is often a decision not just for them, but their family. But some of the costs associated with not being more candid, or at least saying, would you like me to be more candid with you? Would you like me to give you a rough estimate? And again, with all the disclaimers that you could be an outlier, you could be different. um, You might have other health concerns that actually put you in a camp that makes you less likely to live that long. But uh, I think there are a lot of costs associated with it, which are not just the emotional costs on the family uh, and the emotional costs on the patient who feels like everyone's been sort of pretending that death wasn't right around the corner. And then when death is right around the corner, they feel like the rug has been pulled out from underneath them. Then all of a sudden they have to make a lot of hard decisions uh, when either they don't have the time to, or they physically can't. So what I was seeing in the ethics committee were situations where the patient was crashing who had terminal cancer. They're taken to the ICU, the cancer ICU or a regular ICU, and they're intubated with a ventilator because they can't breathe on their own, especially with lung cancer. This is really common because the lungs just collapse and they can't, they can't physically get enough air. So then they can't talk. And then they're on the ventilator. They can't talk. So they can't tell you what they want. And then the family is all trying to infer what they think the patient would want. That puts a lot of emotional pressure on them. They're not sure. They're trying to say, oh, well, how long would they want to be on the ventilator? Would they want to be on it for two weeks? Um, where are we getting any signs that things are improving? 
And so there's that very real cost of the patient may never be able to express what his or her wishes are if, if you wait too long and then they're on a ventilator. And then they may be so dependent on the ventilator, you can't get them off of it to talk to them, to ask. So I was seeing those kinds of cases, not infrequently on the ethics committee, and thinking, why didn't someone just have these conversations sooner? But there's also the financial costs of the actual care that is given. Um, and good ethical surgeons will tell you that sometimes knowing when not to do a procedure is as important as knowing when to do it. Uh, but it, that's often a very hard call. Like the idea of recovering from a really exhausting surgery and then maybe only having another week or so left to live. Some people, given that information, would say, I think I'll pass on this surgery. In relation to that, are there risks uh, associated with not having kind of candid and fulsome information about diagnosis that might affect the decisions that patients make about the medical care that they choose to receive or not receive that might potentially actually have negative outcomes or be harmful to them in some ways? Absolutely. Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I've seen cases, also ethics cases, where patients had had chemotherapy once before, maybe twice before. And so this was their third round of chemotherapy. And they knew what it was like. They knew exactly how painful, toxic, exhausting um, it was. But if they thought that this might get them to see their kid's marriage or graduation, then they might be willing to put up with that pain. Um, but if it's not going to, and maybe that was like they had an event, kind of a pin in their calendar. I've, I want to make it to my granddaughter's dance recital or her graduation. And so they're willing to incur certain toxins, basically. I mean, you're getting toxins in your body and pain in your body. Um, they might be willing to do that. So it's the cost benefit can totally change. And if then they find out that, oh, I'm sorry, you thought that you were going to live to the graduation. Like no one on your treating team thought you were going to make it to that. Nobody even talked to you about that being a goal of yours. If they had, then they, they would be able to tell you that that may not be realistic. And then that chemotherapy starts looking a lot less attractive. Uh, so I think there, there are a lot of decisions like that about, uh, if you're starting to have trouble breathing, uh, do you want to go on hospice and go home so that you can live out if you only have a couple of weeks left or a couple of months left? Would you prefer to be home? So it's really, it's, it's really about figuring out what the values are of the patient and what would make for a pleasant remaining amount of time for them. Would it be just watching TV, watching their TV in their chair at their house? Uh, or for some people that might, might not be so attractive and they would rather try everything because they want to make sure that they've tried every possible drug, tried every possible round of chemotherapy, maybe even tried getting on some clinical trials. But yeah, that's, I think the concern is that your own personal cost benefit analysis will be screwed, will be skewed if you think that the benefits are a cure and those are not actually on the table. Why exactly does this happen? I mean, is it just a kind of interpersonal thing or are there institutional or structural incentives that sort of encourage healthcare providers to, you know, frame information in ways that may not be entirely candid or entirely accurate for patients? Yeah. So I think, I think the leading reason is this kind of psychosocial, but I think there are lots of other structural reasons too. So uh, one is kind of a cynical one. 
but it's that physicians make a lot more money when they are administering chemotherapy and doing surgeries. Surgeries produce a ton of income for hospitals. They reimburse at the highest rates. Chemotherapy is one of the only kinds of treatments that physicians can actually themselves make money off of. So normally the way the reimbursement works for drugs is if they're part of the formulary on your insurance, your insurance pays for them. And the drug manufacturer and the hospital will get some kind of reimbursement, but the physician gets no reimbursement because that would be illegal. That would be a kickback. But with chemotherapy, because of the historical way that it was administered, it was a toxin. You needed to have experts actually infusing people in the hospital or in the office. Physicians were allowed to get a certain percentage of the chemotherapy money back. And they still can. It's capped, but they can still get a piece of the chemotherapy dollars back to them, which would be illegal in any other context, but just for chemotherapy, it's allowed. And there are oncology centers that have made just massive amounts of money uh, billing for chemotherapy. So I don't think that there are physicians out there who are giving patients chemotherapy when it's not justified at all. But if it's a sort of a gray area, and this may be the third line of chemotherapy, and the patient's not telling them to stop, and the family's not telling them to stop, and they also know that this patient is still feeling very hopeful, they may want to have another kind of like arrow in the quiver that they can try. And that financial incentive on top of all of that can really tip the scales. So I think it's not probably the primary reason, but I do think that all of the incentives are kind of lining up in one direction and there's very little on the other side pushing back against that. So do you think that there is a substantial risk that there are patients who are getting surgeries or getting chemotherapy treatment that if they knew the kind of full context of their prognosis, that they might not or would not choose to receive? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, I don't know what percentage of those, but I've, I've actually even spoken to family members who've said that after the fact that had they known that their family member only had a couple of weeks left to live, Again, projected, who knows for sure. But if they knew that, if they knew what the treating team knew and they knew what the oncologist knew, then they would have foregone a surgery, chemotherapy, something like that. Because, I mean, when you're really sick with cancer, these surgeries aren't things you just bounce right back from. And the recovery can mean that you're not able to hug your grandkids. And after this last year of knowing for a lot of people what that's like, uh, those kind of deaths can be really lonely. So, yeah, I think I think without a doubt. I mean, I know firsthand of families who've experienced this, but the data also suggests that there's a big gap between what physicians know, the physicians who are treating the patients, and then interviewing the patients and saying, um, what do you think the purpose of this treatment is? And then after they have passed, talking to family members and caregivers and saying, uh, what did you think? Did you think that this death was coming as quickly as it did? Were you surprised? Uh, and at all of these interviews have been done um, at different scales, some of them with thousands of patients. And definitely they found that there were patients who received aggressive care that they would not have wanted. Of course, there are patients who got all the care they wanted too, and maybe wish they could have had more. And maybe there, there are patients on the other side of things who wish that the physicians wouldn't have given up so soon. Uh, but that's the minority. The majority of cases are the opposite, where there's a lot of aggressive care at the end of life. Something like over half of the Medicare drug expenses that Medicare pays out for Medicare Part B drugs are for cancer drugs. There are other financial things going on where normally if you're in a class of drugs um, for Medicare, they will reimburse among a similar group of drugs at the lowest rate so that it incentivizes physicians to prescribe 
among drugs that are equally effective for reason A, the cheapest drug, and they're not allowed to do that for cancer drugs. So they often will choose the most expensive drug among a class. And researchers, yeah, money, a lot of money involved. Researchers who've looked into this, Health Affairs and other journals, have shown that when there is a choice among a class of drugs, physicians pick the most expensive drug. And it's not always because it's better. In fact, sometimes the long-term data show that it's not better, and it may even be less effective among that class of drugs. But if you get 6% of the drug back in your purse, that gives you an incentive to try the, the newer, more expensive patented drug. Well, so if, if somebody with a cancer diagnosis or a family member of someone with a cancer diagnosis came to you and said, sort of, what should I know about the information I'm getting from my doctors? How should I think about it? What should I ask them? And what should I insist on them providing to me? Like, wh what would you say to them? Oh, that's a great question. So I think if patients ask their physicians um, pointedly, what, what do you think? How much time do you think I have? Be, be blunt with me. Uh, I think physicians are much more likely to tell them, but no, they're afraid of introducing that themselves. And there have even been studies showing that, that when they ask physicians, why aren't you telling patients? They say, because they never brought it up. And that's really hard to broach that topic. So if you want to know your prognosis, and not, not all patients do, just ask your physician, say, can you be frank with me? Can you tell me? What would you want to know? And that's the other thing that's funny is these research, these studies show that what physicians want to know is not what they tell their patients. So they say, oh, yeah, I would want to know everything. I, would want to, I wouldn't want to have aggressive care at the end of life. I would not want to have a third round of chemotherapy. But then why are you offering it to patients if you wouldn't want it yourself? So uh, what I would tell patients to ask is ask if they have a palliative care social worker and ask for a consult with a social worker to talk about your goals of care. Uh, ask if they have anyone who is sometimes they're not even in palliative care, sometimes they're just the cancer hospital has social workers to do an end of life consult. So um, you can now get reimbursed for having a discussion about your end of life goals of care. That didn't used to be the case. That wasn't the case when I wrote the article. Uh, and so because you couldn't reimburse for those conversations, physicians weren't having them. That's one, another incentive why these conversations weren't being had because physicians are busy, even oncologists, very busy, and they have to see more and more patients and they get paid for billing things and not for talking about billing things. So uh, I think I would tell patients, first of all, talk to your family. So make sure your family knows what kinds of things you might like to have done and what kinds of things you might not like to have done. If you are interested in documenting that and putting that down, then fill out an advanced directive. Those are imperfect because they're like, I mean, they only really address the basics. And there are a lot of contingencies that come up that can't be addressed in, you know, an advanced contract. But I would have an advanced directive. I would appoint a surrogate. Make sure you've had kind of open conversations with that agent or surrogate about what kinds of things would be acceptable to you. And it doesn't have to be specifics like um, I would, I would only want to have the feeding tube for two weeks, right? You could just say, if I could watch football, then I would be happy. If I could listen to music, then that would be sufficient. So you kind of know what sorts of things are worth it to them. And then things like, would you want to be on a ventilator for more than three weeks? Would you want to try surgery if you couldn't communicate with us? Would you want to have a G-tube if you couldn't eat? Like having kind of those conversations specific to both devices and also to their values and what would make their life worth living to them. Questions about talk to your family about what you want your funeral to be like and all of those kinds of things. But then to the physician, um, 
you should tell your physician what your information preferences are. And if you're, you could say, I'm the kind of patient who wants to know everything. I want you to give it to me straight. But you sometimes are going to still have to push the physician to say, translate that for me. Like, what do you think I'll be able to make it to my daughter's graduation? Um, to really push them to answer the question in a binary way instead of the way they're used to giving information, which is very rosy, optimistic. Yeah. Um, so I think having that preliminary conversation with your oncologist and saying, this is the kind of patient I am. You could say I'm the kind of patient who doesn't want to know. And we don't even have to say the C word. And we all know I have cancer, but let's just not keep referring to it. And that's, I think it's all about just making sure that things, these conversations are in line with the patient's preferences. But I think you're going to have to circle back with that oncologist periodically and keep checking in with them to say, like, do you, do you think that this is realistic for me to expect to, I, I'm thinking of joining um, an online course and it's $500, but it starts in September. Do you think I'm going to be able to take that class? Like have those kinds of conversations with your physician um, and with the social worker. I think I would get a social worker involved too. One thing that that struck me when reading your paper was how much so much of this problem seems to stem from how difficult it is to convey bad facts or bad news to people in a way not only that's candid but also that they can accept and it's funny because as a sort of attorney and law professor, I feel that's a big part of what lawyers do. And, and I wonder I wonder if you think the legal profession has anything to offer medicine in this one particular respect. That's a great question, especially like criminal defense attorneys. And, and because it's a good metaphor for the relationship because the client should always be in the driver's seat just as the patient should be, right? And you're just offering information, but ultimately they make the choice. I think it's in medicine, patients, and it depends kind of on demographics and you know individual choices, but some patients still want their physicians to tell them what to do. And even though, you know, since the 1950s, we've been developing a model of medicine, which is much more about self-determination and about patients directing their care, that makes some patients very uncomfortable. They want the physician to just tell them, what would you do? And what's interesting is in this sphere, that seems to be what a lot of patients want too, is they want the, pa the physician to say, well, what would you do if this were your daughter or your wife or your, you know, um, uh, your partner? And so I, I do think that there's probably something to learn from attorneys. I hadn't thought about that, but that's great. I mean, the duty of disclosure in law is the professional obligation is something that occurred first in law. And it's only in the last 20 or so years that physicians have developed AMA ethics guidelines around not uh, that lying could be by omission, uh, but they still, they haven't developed that kind of ethics as robustly as attorneys have about duties of disclosure, uh, duties of risk disclosure. I do think, so it's really hard to talk about death. I think it's really hard for physicians who are often not meeting their patients at the same spiritual plane. So even physicians who are very religious, when they put on their physician cap, um, they tend to think of their job as much more secular. And when someone's dying, it's not a completely scientific thing for them. It's a, it's a values thing. It's a religious thing. It's a personal thing. And so I think that maybe it's not best to have physicians having all of the conversations. They can maybe deliver the data and they can talk about what they think the prognosis is. But I do think people who are better trained in talking about death and meeting the patient where they are spiritually is probably better. Like a a death doula, a social worker, 
someone who's maybe trained more in end of life. Palliative care doctors tend to be a lot better at this than oncologists. <laughs> they have more of that in their training. Uh, but yeah, I think that's that's part of the problem too, is that this is not just a scientific decision. It's a spiritual one. And a lot of physicians really struggle with talking about things in terms of spirituality. Well, so in the paper, you make a number of suggestions about positive changes that might push the kind of disclosure process in a, in a better direction. I wonder if you could just highlight a few that you think would be the most important or the most likely to be effective. Yeah, I think there are two, and one of them has happened. Uh, the first was just allowing physicians to bill for those conversations, because when you squeeze physicians' time so much, they have so little time in their day for anything other than you know, figuring out insurance, seeing patients, uh, adding one more thing that is tricky and takes time and not allowing them to bill for it means it's just not going to happen. So putting the at least financial incentives in place to say we can bill for this conversation, uh, that was huge. So the Center for Medicare and uh, Medicaid Services put out a call for notice and comment maybe four years ago, shortly after this article was published, looking for feedback from people in the community about whether they should create a billing code for this. Um, I submitted notice and comment. I submitted some of this research. Who knows if that had any impact? It was could have been screaming into the void with lots of other people. But they did decide to create a billing code. Um, so you can now bill for having conversations about end-of-life care. Uh, another piece I would suggest is that there's a sort of sense that once someone decides to go into hospice care, that that's the end and that there's nothing that can be done after that. And part of that is sort of structurally baked into the Medicare reimbursement that if someone goes into hospice, what that means is we are transitioning away from curing the cancer. And now we are just treating the side effects of the cancer and discomfort, treating pain. But Medicare makes you certify that someone only has six months to live in order to be in hospice care. And then once you're in hospice, there are things like infections and other kind of scaled up treatments that Medicare won't reimburse for. And so there's a feeling that once you decide to go into hospice care, if you change your mind, you're kind of stuck. And that's really just like the one, one way track to, to dying and everyone giving up on you. There really is a feeling that the healthcare establishment will be turning its back on you because if you have an infection, if you aren't eating well, if you're not able to digest your food, all of the things we would normally do for someone outside of hospice, we may not do for you because that's not part of the plan uh, now that we're in palliative care mode. So I think allowing patients to elect to go into hospice, which means really focusing on their emotional, mental, physical well-being and their comfort, but then also allowing them to have certain things that they might still be able to get treatment for so they don't see it as kind of a, uh, a one-way road to, with no treatment options available. They haven't, that hasn't been uh, approved yet by Medicare, but I think that would be great. Well, so Tadil, in in closing, you wrote this paper about five or six years ago. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the impact that you've seen from from it, how people have reacted to it, and whether you're still working in this area and you see future projects in in a similar vein. So I, I've presented it at a bunch of places. I know the doctors seem to be connecting with it more so than anyone in the legal literature or like legal academics. Uh, I, Primary Children's is our pediatric hospital. I know a lot of the physicians there were really excited about it because it was like for once, all of these things converged in one way too long article for a physician to read, but they actually read it, which tells me something. A lot of physicians were reading this and saying, 
thank you for kind of putting into words a lot of the what we're experiencing too, because they also feel frustrated because they don't know how to broach the conversation. And they're frustrated that it feels like often they're doing way too much at the end of life, but then they're not, they, they don't really know how to fix it. And so I think it was for one, they just liked seeing that other people were paying attention to this and recognizing that it was a problem. And two, realizing that it's not cynical to say it's okay to stop. Like there's this feeling in medicine that you're just never supposed to want to stop, that there's this kind of conveyor belt mentality. You just keep going, keep going. And it was almost like this article gave them permission to say, it's okay sometimes to stop because sometimes that's what the patients want. And just remembering to kind of ground it in what the patients want. So there's been a lot of like pickup by physicians who've, who've read this and said it really, it was more like validating to them. Uh, it has, I don't know if it was a cause, uh, but Medicare did change the reimbursement, which is great. Uh, I know this has been cited in a bunch of books about death and dying. Um, I, this is like sort of um, like tongue in cheek, but my sister's a second grade school teacher and she was looking for career day to have people come and talk. And I suggested coming and talking about this article to our second graders. So I was like, you know, it's never too early to talk about death. The problem is we just wait until way too long in the lifespan. And I was teasing her, right? Like, I'm not going to go talk about advanced directives or listen, kids, all of you are going to die. But I do think that uh, there needs to be more of a cultural change too, to say that uh, there can be actually some peace that comes from recognizing that we're all going to die. But uh, well, let's see. So other projects. I've also done some other work on end of life around miracles. So related to this was the idea that there can be a mismatch between the team on the other end. So here it's where the patient might actually want to do less, but they feel this pressure to do more and more. Um, but there's also another kind of related problem at the end of life, which is when patients want to do everything and the physicians are saying, we think this is medically futile. Then how do you have that conversation? It's a little different. It doesn't come up as often in terminal cancer patients. It usually comes up in cases of, say, a car accident where a young person who was otherwise very healthy is now possibly brain dead, maybe brain dead. Um, so I did some work there that kind of built on some of this, but about transparency and communication. But it's still very hard. There's, there's still these impasses, and often there can be problems with trust where they don't feel like the physicians are listening to them and they're trying to too quickly get them to just like sign a consent form. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done in this area. Um, and I'm sure, yeah, if I can kind of get my emotional strength up to, to deal with death again, it's a, it's a little bit of a dark place to go to, but as you said, a pretty important one. Yeah. Well, Tanil, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this paper. Um, it really meant a lot to me and I appreciate that you wrote it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much.
When I heard the hour was coming fast And I docked in Santa Barbara Tried to brace myself But you can't brace yourself When the time comes You just have to roll with the blast And I'm an 18-wheeler Headed down the interstate And my brakes are gonna give And I won't know till it's too late Tires screaming when I lose control Try not to hurt too many people when I roll freeway and head south real tired head kind of light I found Telegraph Road I had only seen the name on envelopes found the parking lot and turned right I felt all the details Carving out space in my head Tropicana's on the walkway Neon red Between the pain And the pills trying to hold it at bay Stands a traveler going somewhere far away And I am an airplane tumbling wing over wing Try to listen to my instruments, they don't say anything People screaming when the engines quit I hope we're all in crash position when we hit your bedside And as it turns out I'm not ready And as though You were speaking through a thick haze I 
You said hello to me We all stood there around you Happy to hear you speak The last of something bright burning Still burning Beyond the cancer and the chemotherapy You were a presence full of light upon this earth And I am a witness to your life and to its worth It's three days later when I get the call And there's nobody around to break my fall 